today on Ag News Daily. Uh, you know, we actually saw a, a decent amount of soybeans that remain unplanted, and we saw acreage come in lower than anticipated. Um, and so I think that makes production that much more important. Good afternoon, listeners. It's Ashton Carr on the podcast, joined by Delaney Howell and Mike Pearson. Guys, I tell you what, it's a pretty nice day here in North Texas. We got a little bit of thunderstorms that rolled through this morning. What's it looking like up where you guys are? It is hot and dry here in Iowa. We're looking at uh, uh, 10 days with chances of rain, but nothing too serious on the radar. I tell you what, it's a good weekend, though, Delaney. How were the Firework specials over in East Central. Mm, I didn't really. I mean, I guess we watched some fireworks, but can't say they were anything too noteworthy here in Central Iowa, East Central Iowa. So, uh, yeah. But but I want to well, I want to follow up on your hot and dry comment because I've been talking to some farmers on social media today, reading through some various ag marketing groups that I'm part of on Facebook and. Hot and dry seems to be the story when you look across many different parts of the United States. The area, I mean, Iowa is definitely hot and dry, especially when you look in the southern areas. But Indiana and Ohio happen to be two of the states that I continue to see, regardless really of where they're located, of a lot of hot and dry weather. And we're kind of at that make or break time for a lot of farmers where we need to get a drink or the crop is going to be severely affected by that continued dry and hot weather. Yeah. And, you know, I think you're exactly right. You're seeing it talked about on Facebook, social media, you know, commodity market groups, Delaney, and it's being talked about in the markets. I mean, that's definitely a big part of the reason why we saw continued buying today, in my opinion, but we will have expert analysis of what is going on a little bit later when we talk to Andrew Setzer for today's Hashtag Market Monday. We certainly will. We certainly will. But yeah, definitely uh, markets are starting to trade some weather. So that's exciting. It is. And I tell you what, I want to circle back to the fireworks for just a second because there was a fascinating statistic over this week. And of course, Iowa legalized fireworks like three years ago and they were nuts this year in Des Moines. And at one point on uh, the evening of 4th of July, very early morning, you know, the Sunday on the 5th, Iowa, Des Moines, Iowa, had the second worst air quality in the nation, only behind Los Angeles due to all of the fireworks that had been lit off by Iowans. I just thought that was pretty amazing. It's always funny to me, too, like when you travel, especially south to Missouri, the first thing that you see on the Iowa-Missouri border is this huge place to buy fireworks. Yeah, and I wonder how they're doing now that Iowa's got them legal. Yeah, I don't know. Probably not so well Well, anymore. I I wouldn't imagine. Why make that drive when you can just go to, you know, the gas station and pick up fireworks? Mm -hmm. But I tell you what, Delaney, we can segue this into our current conversation because where are most fireworks made? Um, I want to say China, but I am not positive. You're correct. China is where most fireworks are made. And earlier today, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and over 40 trade associations got together to urge U.S. and Chinese officials 
to continue their efforts to implement the phase one trade agreement. Um, basically, all of these groups got together. They're talking not just ag products, which is what we've been focusing on here on the podcast. $40 billion worth of ag purchases is what China agreed to. Uh, they also agreed to buy copious amounts of manufactured products, of energy products, of all sorts of things from the U.S. to be shipped into China. And they're running behind and not just on ag. They're running behind on everything else. And so all of these different trade group associations got together and they said, hey, guys, we know things are getting crazy. We know this virus has people on edge, both because they've been trapped in their homes and because of China's you know, lack of communication or lack of handling of the issue back when it started in Wuhan. And they're kind of calling for a timeout, saying, look, let's, let's help everybody make a living here. Let's get China to stick to their agreement on this phase one trade deal. And We'll see if this is enough to make any headway in the conversation about uh, the trade deal going forward. President Trump is certainly no friend of China, and uh, whether or not he wants to continue efforts to decouple from China, we will find out here heading into the election, no doubt. Yeah, and following up with the China story, I'm hearing some rumors and trickles that uh, China could be potentially facing a corn shortage. A couple different issues going on there, including the uh, army worm problem that we've talked about before. So it does appear that China could be and I think is coming to the table to buy some U.S. corn, at least here short term. It would make a lot of sense, given the weakness in the dollar and their need to fulfill their agreement if they decide mm -hmm. to continue working on phase one. Absolutely. Well, Ashton, what stories are you watching today? Well, you know, we've been talking a lot about how the U.S. is trying to help farmers and ranchers during their time of need during the pandemic and pork producers might be getting the need that they are wanting. So legislation that would appropriate an additional $5 billion to help pork producers mitigate losses caused by COVID-19 has been introduced to the U.S. House. Now, Minnesota Republican Jim Hagdorn told Brownfield Ag News that Direct Pork Assistance Package Act supports payments to in independent pig farmers who have sold into an artificially depressed market. And uh, Republican Hagdorn, who introduced the bill to the House, said that they arrived at $5 billion in direct assistance by first assessing the value of the market before the pandemic hit. So we're going to have to keep up with that headline to see if all of that gets passed and if pork producers actually get that $5 billion worth of assistance. Yeah, Ashton, I'm glad you brought that up because also going on right now in Congress, we've seen another act, another, yeah, it's an act um, that could help Livestock producers, not specifically pork producers, but we saw a bipartisan bill has had a lot of support from livestock groups and even some consumer advocate groups that could help small meat processing get up to federal inspection standards. So we're talking here mostly about some of those mom and pop lockers and facilities because most state inspected meat processors can't sell across state lines as of current day. So there's a couple exceptions for some plants located in about seven states that participate in what's called the USDA Cooperative Interstate Shipment Program. But this new bill called Ramp Up Act would authorize federal grants to enable processors to move from state to USDA inspections to help with some of this 
quote unquote shortage in the marketplace and allow some of those smaller mom and pop shops, some smaller meat processors to be able to ship across state lines where we've got a need for some high quality proteins. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating idea, and I really hope it gains a lot of traction. You know, we've been talking on this podcast for three years about the need for more competition mm-hmm. in the meat slaughter space, and regional, state-level, local lockers and slaughter plants can certainly provide that on the margin, which can help set pricing. But one of the concerns I've heard from a lot of folks more connected to the industry than I am isn't necessarily that they need the money to get their facilities up to date, though I'm sure that is a challenge in some places. It's the actual inspectors coming around. So I wonder if there's also going to be increased funding for inspection. Yeah, I I mean, I'm not sure at this point. I think it's still pretty early. It's only been introduced in the House. Um, But you'd think that there would have to be some increase in funding because you have to have an inspector, I believe, every day when you are processing that's my understanding as well. And maybe they can work out a deal where, you know, Jim's plant process is Monday, the inspector's there, maybe. and he's at another place mm-hmm. on Tuesday, you know, who knows. But I, I think there's something we should definitely keep watching. Could be a big boon to rural America. You know, we've definitely seen consumers throughout COVID look towards farmers and ranchers as a source and supply of meat. And the crucial component is getting that meat taken from the hoof to the plate. And that's where local processors and lockers step in. It certainly is. Well, I've got some other news uh, for really our listeners up in the Dakotas are going to be most impacted by this. Um, But there was a court case earlier today, a U.S. district court ordered Energy Transfer LP to shut and empty the Dakota Access Pipeline. Several years ago when this pipeline was constructed, it was the, the huge issue of contention because they ran the pipeline underneath Lake Oahe in North Dakota. And the uh, the court said the Army Corps of Engineers didn't do that correctly. This pipeline ships 570,000 barrels of crude per day out of the Bakken oil fields, I believe, and certainly through North Dakota. And uh, then it takes them down to Midwest refineries. I forget where it terminates. But basically, we were able to put all of this oil coming out of the Bakken into this pipeline which freed up rail cars. When we think back to 2013, 2014, there was terrible basis in North Dakota because all of the trains were tied up shipping crude. They weren't uh, able to ship soybeans. So we just had piles of beans and corn sitting around uh, at North Dakota elevators and co-ops that couldn't get moved. The closure of this pipeline, which is going to be contested, the the energy company said they are going to uh, fight this. However, the odds makers currently only grant a 30 percent uh, chance of a temporary stay. And they say if President Trump is reelected, this pipeline will probably only stay shut down for 10 to 12 months. However, if President Trump doesn't win and looking at some of the the ideas you know, in the Joe Biden campaign based on what he might do when he becomes president, Dakota Access Pipeline could shut down for good, which would bring those transportation issues back into the limelight for our friends up in the Dakota. So this is something that agriculture is definitely going to have to watch. Yeah, I'm not sure what their alternative would be if we don't see President Trump reelected. They don't really have Um, one, right? They'll they'll just put the oil back on trains. Mm, Okay. That's what they were doing before. Okay. And that's what tied up all the rail cars and all the... uh, the train tracks. 
Well, it just seems like rail cars too are, I mean, I think we've had this discussion on the podcast, but rail cars are just so much more dangerous. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, they explode from time to time. They're full of oil. And <laughs> right. they're crossing streets and roads and places that, you know, we're crossing with semis and cars and children and, you know, but people are opposed to these pipelines. So they're going to, you know, bring these rolling bombs back through small towns. Oh, rolling bombs. That's nice. That should be, uh, <laughs> they should use that for a campaign against them. Yeah. Hey, I'm up open uh, for a, you know, a marketing position, uh, oil company that needs PR. <laughs> In promotion of your pipeline, I, I don't think if you're a rail car builder, you want to call them rolling bombs, but I'm, no. I'll take a check from whoever. <laughs> oh, geez. What are the stories you got to keep an eye on? Ashton, what are you watching today? So I am watching the strawberry war over in Estonia. And so we've been talking a little bit about uh, migrant workers and seasonal workers for harvesting, and Estonia is seeing a little bit of that as well. So the Estonian government decided today, on Monday, to reverse an earlier decision to block entry to seasonal workers from outside the European, European Union, and that ended a standoff dubbed the Strawberry War in local media Um Opposition lawmakers had called for a special session of parliament today seeking to resolve the labor problems as farmers said that strawberries and other crops were rotting in their fields without those seasonal workers from abroad to come over and harvest them. And so this decision means seasonal workers will be allowed to enter Estonia for up to six months in a year until April 2022. And uh, they came to this decision because there's a the far right EKRE party had been saying that those uh, harvesting jobs need to go to unemployed people, um, as as we're seeing from coronavirus lockdowns across the world. Um, unemployment in Estonia is expected to triple this year to around 13 percent due to those lockdowns, and so they wanted those jobs to go to those people in Estonia that were unemployed, but the government said it had reversed its decision on economic grounds, aiming to help struggling businesses. And there's uh, one business in particular, Ramsey Agro, that is quoted in this article saying that 70% of its strawberry harvest of 50 tons were left in the fields and only half of the number of migrant workers were there to pick them. And so we're seeing something kind of turn around in Estonia, and those migrant workers are going to be able to actually go into the country and help harvest. Well, I think that's the first time we've actually heard uh, governments making decisions to allow immigration back into uh, complete ag, you know, tasks, mm-hmm. harvest or plant. So I think it's probably a good news. But I've got just one other piece of news here, and this is coming out of China. We've been tracking their shutdowns of exports for meat plants around the world. Well, they have targeted two more Brazilian pork plants. These are owned, one's owned by JBS, one is owned by BRF. And they say they are temporarily halting imports from those two facilities um, going forward. Now, I don't know if this is a clarification, if these are the two they targeted last week that didn't name and now they're naming, or if these are two new closures. It sounds as though they're new closures, but I haven't confirmed it yet. This was uh, just reported earlier today, so I'll keep an eye on it going forward. All right. Well, with that being said, I am all out of news as well. Mike, what do you say? Should we check out the markets for today? Let's check the markets before we jump into our conversation with Angie Setzer. 
And we've got an up day today in the corn market. July corn up four cents at 346 and a half. December up two and three quarters to finish at 356 and a quarter. Soybeans also higher on the day. July up six cents at 898 and a half. November up nine and a half at 906 and a quarter. In the wheat market, mixed trade after being lower throughout the morning. July up, excuse me, down half a cent at 489 and a half. December, however, is up one and a quarter at 5.01 even. In the livestock markets, more green on the screen. August live cattle up 70 cents at 110. October up $1.25, closed at 103.92.50. Feeder cattle also higher on the day. August up $1.2750 at 136.15. September $1.3750, closed 137.22 half. And lean hogs, July up 22.5 cents at 44.95. The August up 7.5, closed the day at 49.2750. Look at the milk markets in class three milk. Holy buckets. July up 28 cents, closed right near the high, finished above $23, closed at $23.25. The August up 63 cents to finish at $21.58. Without further ado, let's kick it over to our good friend, cash market superstar, Angie Setzer. Well, for today's hashtag Market Monday conversation, as promised, we are talking to Twitter superstar and also vice president of grains at Citizens Elevator, Angie Setzer. Angie, how are you doing today? I am good. How are you guys doing? Not too bad. Not too bad here in central Iowa. At least it's been pretty hot and dry. How are things looking up in your neck of the woods? Quite hot and dry, uh, for sure. I think everyone's pretty much looking at that. And I don't think you have to look very far beyond you know, a weather map just to see, obviously, that the high temperatures are in the 90s. And, you know, for us, we've been upper 80s, low 90s, which is is warm for Michigan, uh, probably seven to eight degrees above average. And then, of course, uh, you know, we've been missing a lot of the rains here in the eastern Corn Belt. And so I partially blame myself for, you know, ordering all of that warmer, drier weather last spring. It's finally must be it was shipped USPS because it just showed up. So here, here it is, and and it's all my fault that we're we're too hot and dry. <laughs> well, Angie, I mean it's your fault. I think we'll all agree to that. But it does seem like this is further encouraging that massive fund short position to move its way out of corn. What's your take? I mean, this momentum to the upside certainly is pretty strong. Yeah. Well, it has been. Um, you know, I, I don't want to be that guy, but I am a little disappointed in today's move just simply because I thought for sure, you know, going home on Thursday, yeah, the seven cent downward move. Okay, I'll, I'll give you that. We're going into the weekend. Who knows what this is going to look like? Not only is it a weekend, it's an extended weekend during a weather market. After gaining back, you know, uh, what did we gain back? 30 some cents here real quick. Like, so, um, you know, Thursday didn't surprise me too awful much, but over the weekend, seeing the forecast continue with the hot and dry weather, um, you know, really, I thought for sure today uh, we would see uh, a big exit of of the shorts uh, from the funds, and and so I mean we we're up three. I'm not gonna um, be angry about it, but I am am a little bit surprised at the muted trade that it, it felt like we had today. It's it's almost as though we're waiting to see what crop conditions look like, perhaps tonight. Um, and you know, every weatherman that I I follow, which this time of year is, is a lot, is basically saying the same thing. Hey, it's gonna be high we're gonna have pop-up showers there's not going to be any sort of real system that has massive amounts of uniform coverage but people should get rain potentially and so now i guess we're waiting to see where the rain falls and how much how much comes with those storms and angie assuming we don't have maybe quite as favorable uh ratings in today's report coupled with 
continued hot and dry forecasts. How much more of a weather premium can we build into this corn market? I think, you know, I think there is some concern over what it looks like on Friday. So does there need to be a significant amount of weather premium? Obviously, we lost a significant amount of bushels, you know, last week with that 5 million acre um, loss in, in planted acreage. I mean, that that was a lot. It's a, it's a significant amount, 750 million, give or take, depending on what your yield estimate is. You know, and so that idea is concerning. Um, but then at the same time, you could flip back to what we had seen in May, which a lot of traders were kind of surprised by the aggressive stance the USDA had taken from a demand standpoint, um, with an increase in ethanol exports and feed demand across the board, uh, you know, adding up to about a billion bushel in additional demand this year expected versus you know, the 1920 crop year. Um, so do we chew through, you know, do we lose some demand? Uh, we did see last week as well that, you know, kind of buried underneath everything was the quarterly stocks numbers um, that came in higher than anticipated, kind of indicating that we are going to see um, old crop carry out beginning stocks for new crop increase as well and kind of chew into some of that that loss. You know, so I think everyone's kind of waiting to see what Friday looks like potentially. What is happening with COVID? Are we going to see more more of a lockdown? Is there concern over what demand looks like? Because I think the one thing that we have to keep in mind last year, we had the significant rally on this idea that we were facing a significant loss in production, only to discover that we had chewed through a significant amount of demand because of the higher prices. You know, we saw uh, demand really kind of fall out of bed. And so everyone, I think that's a, a really close uh, memory in their mind. And so that's what they're looking at right now. And, and part of the reason you aren't seeing this market uh, necessarily off to the races, like I think a lot of people were anticipating, you know, coming into last night's trade. Well, and Angie, when we look down the rest of the markets, I mean, soybeans in particular, another big move for the day, November up mm-hmm. almost a dime on the day, well off the highs, actually, a six cents, yeah. you know, off the highs. But, you know, we're a long way from August to really be getting yeah. concerned about whether in the sweeping market, there wasn't that massive short position from the funds coming into this uh, shorter acreage expectation. Where is all of this moment coming from? Well, I think everyone was kind of of the idea that we were going to see a two to three million acre loss in corn and, and under the assumption that if we did see this two to three million acre loss in corn, it was automatically going to go to soybeans, right? And so we were really kind of nervous that the USDA's number for new crop projections from an acreage standpoint was probably too low. Well, last week told us it wasn't. Uh, you know, we actually saw a, a decent amount of soybeans that remain unplanted and we saw acreage come in lower than anticipated. Um, and so I think that makes production that much more important. I think, you know, I think everyone being so bearish all of these markets for so long kind of allowed this sort of um, lackadaisical style approach to the soybean market. We've just been negative. It's going to be negative. Negative, we're going to get more acres. We're going to yield just fine. No worries, you know. And and exports are down. Like that's been the the conversation forever. We're not we're not going to meet our export targets. Well, you know, we pretty much have met our our export targets right now um, from a sales standpoint. Obviously, we still have to ship them, but we've we have met that that export sales target with still a decent amount of uh, time left in the the crop year. Um, so do we see some continuation or some potential increase in, in export uh, potential as we move forward for, for old crop? You know, does that carry over into some new crop excitement, especially with the reduction in supply availability that we're looking at potentially? So, I mean, I think soybeans have had a story for a while. I think they just had to jump the acreage, you know, accidental acreage increase story. And I think now that they have, they've avoided that, you know, kind of being the the rain on their parade. I think there's been a lot of pent up um, excitement over soybeans that can finally kind of come out to play. 
And Angie, would you would you say that the soybean market is more of a supply and demand driven uh, rally right now, whereas corn is more supply driven? I mean, I've seen some sentiment or some mm-hmm. speculation that that's really why we've seen these two markets move the way that they have and that soybeans are really itching to move more to the upside than corn at this point. Yeah, I agree completely. I think soybeans has a story on both sides of the ledger when you're looking at supply and demand. I think that we're, you know, potentially underestimating what overall demand looks like, especially from an export standpoint on soybeans, where I think corn's the exact opposite. Whatever you cut out of production, if you see a continued increase higher in prices, you're really running into the threat of, of uh, you know, cutting that out of the demand side. You know, like I said, I mean, demand in corn uh was is expected to grow about a billion bushels year over year and and that's a pretty hefty um sort of that's some heavy lifting that's going to take cheaper prices and right now you know to see the market rally recently yeah we had some cheap prices early on and of course the acreage reduction that we saw last week really kind of brought the floor up when it comes to to how cheap prices can get obviously we kind of you know no longer have this worry of a four billion bushel carryout that we could have had had we lost demand and met the initial usda projections um and so i think corn you know, it is a supply side, supply driven story. And I think we saw last year how quickly that kind of dissipated. And so maybe that's part of the reason why the funds aren't overly concerned, um, you know, about uh, necessarily just running to the exits in that position like we kind of thought we might see. From a farmer's perspective, Angie, of course, you are in the cash grain business. You're plugged into cash trading around the country. What is happening with basis? How are things shaping up for delivery on nearbys? you know, from what you're seeing? We, I mean, we saw the market, uh, basis market really kind of take back a lot of what the futures market had given at the start of last week. Um, Overnight, basically, we saw cash basis drop off about 15 cents or so here locally. And that's been the story that we've heard kind of uh, around the country. Now, there are some folks that have firmed back up. You know, maybe they had that initial big rush of of purchases uh, on day one and, and, you know, widened out their basis just because they didn't know what we were looking at, you know, going forward and then kind of brought it back in. So there's been some some ebbs and flows, I guess you could say, on the basis side of things. But um, as a whole, there aren't a lot of end users at this point in time that are overly eager to to pay a bunch for corn. Um, and I mean, that can't be too surprising. Right now, we just, we don't know what this world looks like in, in two or three weeks, um, you know, and, and so that makes it difficult for end users to go out and be aggressive much beyond what their needs are, you know, for the day and week and, and maybe the remainder of the month at hand. And Angie, as you uh, transition to looking at livestock, I know grains are definitely more of your sweet spot, but looking at the cattle complex, they continue to put on strength on the board. Uh, what's going on there? Yeah, we just have, you know, basically we're we're seeing cash trade has been, uh, you know, kind of off from, from where you would like to see it, but it's still fairly active, you know, from what we're seeing. Um, and I think we're still seeing this continuation of, um, slaughter, like we're gaining back from a, a harvest capacity on that side. So that's somewhat supportive. And I think we've also discovered there was this idea or this approach to the market structure that, you know, if people were eating at home, they weren't going to be able to figure out how to cook a steak. Well, I, I don't think that's accurate. I mean, I think we've seen that beef demand is, has remained strong. 
um, you know, in the in the face of of COVID. Um, you know, some folks are trying to say that that demands potentially peaked with the Fourth of July holiday passing. You know, but really, when it comes down to it, if if you're hot, I mean, that's what we do in the Setzer household. If it's if it's hot, we don't want to cook indoors. We're grilling outside. So I think part of uh, you know the the demand uh, loss that we tend to see in, in the month of July may not be there quite yet, just simply because of the fact that we are going to be warm across much of the country and sunny, and and most folks like to be out on the deck if they can be, you know, grilling a steak if it's if it's nice out. Absolutely. You can't go wrong with a steak, with some pork chops, even with a dog or some burgers on the grill any time of the year. But it is a little more comfortable to do it during the summer, especially in Michigan, I'd imagine. For sure. Well, Angie, before we let you go, do you have any other thoughts that growers need to have in their heads here as we get into summer? We start to see a weather rally develop. Who knows where it's going to go? What are your thoughts to folks as they are taking a look at balance sheets this summer? I mean, it's important to kind of keep in mind uh, what reality looks like and obviously look at your own reality, too, when it comes from a, a crop size guest. You know, have a have an honest conversation with yourself about what your potential production looks like. You know, if you're in an area that looks really good, then make sure that you're being a little bit more aggressive with the, the upside move that we're seeing here. Um, obviously, if if production is kind of a concern for you, there's a lot of folks in the Southern Plains that are, are dealing with some dry land corn that's that not looking looking the best the same can be said for folks even you know across the corn belt so just kind of take your own story into consideration also make sure that you don't get too bogged down in the we could go to uh you know sort of mindset that we tend to get into this time of year where everyone's wanting to nail the high so just make sure if you're if you're behind and you haven't done much when it comes to to marketing your crop that you're you know looking at putting in target orders that you're going to maintain as well as you know putting in some some orders that you hopefully can find some profitability in and and look for DS 21 as well. I would be uh, looking at on corn with this rally and, and just you know, have those targets in for, for soybeans for sure to the upside. Well, again, a big thank you there to Angie Setzer at Goddess of Green on Twitter. So be sure to check her out. She's always tweeting good things. But hey, so are we here on the Ag News Daily podcast. You can find us on social media at Ag News Daily on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Ashton, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.